Digital enabled biology. What in the world does that mean? And what are the implications for healthcare, for policy, for the government? How does it all relate to innovation? And what's the government doing about this anyways? Because public policy plays a role. And today on episode number 252 of CXO Talk, we are speaking with two amazing people. And that's what we're talking about. I'm Michael Krigsman, an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. And before we begin, I want to say thank you to Livestream for supporting CXO Talk. They provide our video streaming infrastructure and they're great. And if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they will give you a discount on their plans. And I hope you do that because they're, they're really great. So without further ado, let's begin by introducing our first guest. Libby Prescott has an amazing background uh, in the government, and now she is a professor at Georgetown University. Hey, Libby Prescott, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. It's great to be here. So Libby, tell us about your background and tell us what you do. So I often introduce myself as a recovering scientist. Uh, I am one of those who did my PhD in molecular biology before I realized that I was less comfortable in a lab or less interested in being in a lab and more interested in engaging globally on, on issues at the interface of the technology and how it was integrated into society. Uh, I've now been in government for a decade and three different agencies working across not only bio, but also the data and data transparency issues within government and, 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 and a lot of how we embrace and engage and bring on board new technologies uh, to use them for the national security mission and, and governance in general. And you said you're a recovering scientist. And so what was your, and or what is, I guess I should say, uh, your scientific field? I did my PhD in molecular biology on gene transcription. So that step between when you take DNA and actually turn it into a transcript that is then read into a protein. So at the very basic level of research. And I really was always captivated by biology, but I wanted something more engaging with groups and people than just doing independent research at two in the morning in a lab, which I think is something that many scientists learn along their, their path. And so you joined the government and what did you do? What did you, very briefly, what did you do for? Yeah, so I started in the national, I originally actually started on the Hill doing healthcare policy, working with Senator Kennedy um, many moons ago. Uh, and that was an amazing opportunity to see healthcare at a, at a political level, uh, less about policy, more about politics in that context. I then moved over to do international science policy, working on Asia and um, on how uh, a lot of countries were using science in their their policy making and and applying it to the the goals of the nation, and then moved over to State Department, um, working uh, Bureau of East Asian Pacific Affairs to to look at Asia regional science cooperation, and then ended up at. Um, working for the deputy secretary, trying to modernize or to help modernize the State Department leading with technology. And then over to DOD for a couple of years where I was looking really at how DOD does their technology and, and how we can get some of these more emerging technologies into how we do our core business, which is defending the nation. Okay, so uh, long history in the government and our second esteemed guest and who the person who introduced us and introduced me to Libby Prescott is David Bray, who in one sense doesn't need any introduction because he's been on CXO Talk many times, but maybe it's a good time to 
to a reintroduction. And so, David Bray, uh, welcome back to CXO Talk. Um, thanks for having me, Michael. And I have to say, this is a particular treat. Uh, Libby and I have known each other for several years, and and to be on the show with Libby, who, as you saw and heard, is an impressive change agent with a uh, diverse career across public service, and to be with you, to me, it's a special treat to be here uh, because it shows. Um, how broad public service is and, and how many different pieces are moving at all different times uh, with different people pushing the envelope. Uh, as for myself, um, thanks again for having me. Uh, I guess in terms of a reintroduction, I soon will be starting a new role and that will be, it's been announced uh, with Vint Cerf uh, for what's called the People-Centered Internet Coalition. It's been around for about three, four years. I first got involved when I was an Eisenhower Fellow, so we actually had some conversations earlier when, with CXO Talk, I guess two years ago, about this topic. Um, but Vint uh, and I were talking, and they said they needed a new executive director, and so uh, by the start of October, I will leave the government uh, as well, as, as, as Libby did as well, and my role will be executive director and basically looking at can we spotlight, support, and assist existing projects that measurably and demonstrably improve people's lives using a community-based approach to the internet. Um, so obviously that's very broad. I look forward to once I start to help sort of narrow it down to some focused goals and priorities. Um, but the chance to work with Vint was a is a once in a lifetime opportunity. The other thing, and hopefully I'm not looking too tired on the show today, is about two months ago I became a newborn, uh, I became a father of a newborn baby boy that we adopted. And uh, so that's also what triggered the change in life is uh, really thinking about what's going to be the internet that he is going to be using when he's 18, 20, and about two decades from now. And, and look forward to the conversations today on that. Okay, so so you are joining a new organization and you have a new baby. And so, uh, so how's sleep going these days? <laughs> <laughs> um, what is sleep? I hear it's a rumor. I, I think I recall it maybe about three months ago, but that's about it. <laughs> All right, so so let's dive in. Uh, data enabled healthcare, uh, Libby. You want to explain what do we mean by that and this concept of exponential technologies? Where does it where does it fit together? Absolutely. So I think part of what I've really enjoyed about tracking emerging technologies over the years is there's always something new emerging, and there's particularly right now a lot of technologies are converging. And with that, you get these really unique interfaces, but also a lot of challenges to how to think about um, combining the com communities, but also the technologies, and then ultimately the governance of those technologies and applying them in any context, but, but particularly in government is always really difficult. So with, when I talk about biotechnology or biology or healthcare in general, I think we're, we're seeing a, a merging of data and health. And, and I think in the past, a lot of the delivery of, of our healthcare system, which I, I often uh, would, I think the, the more appropriate descriptor for that is really a disease care system because we're not optimizing for health of an individual or, or even of a, a population, but actually we're, we're just really treating things very late. Um, what data is allowing us to do is to think about um, understanding what the human as, a, as an organism actually is operating in closer to real time. And with that, we will be able to do a lot of unique things that are not only to prevent, hopefully, the negative outcomes, which would be disease-oriented, but also then you get into the 
optimizing of our, not only just our health, but also our behaviors and our performance. And that's where we really start thinking about um, what does it mean to be um, performing at full functionality? What does augmenting of a human mean? Uh, and to some extent, we are comfortable with certain types of permanent changes that we already do to ourselves as humans. Um, but as we get more data and understand more about um, really what it is to be in real time at a biochemical level operating in different contexts, I think we're going to have a, an entirely different way we think about even what it means to be human. Pretty, pretty interesting uh, set of questions, uh, David. And, and you're about, you also have a background in biology and specifically in bioterrorism. And obviously, that intersects uh, very, very strongly with this notion of government and caring for disease rather than caring for health. Yes, and I, I do want to caveat and say I was I was against bioterrorism, so I'm definitely not a for <laughs> bioterrorism person. So <laughs> sorry, the, the I guess that's, sorry. Program, not the, <laughs> um, with, with that caveat put out there, um, yes, my background when I was undergrad was computer science and biology, and I was fascinated in some sense because computers are things we humans have designed almost from the top down in some respects, whereas biology, obviously it's evolution, it's uh, natural selection. And so trying to understand that sort of bottom up approach convergence as to what makes us humans, mammals, organisms, relative to machines to me is a very interesting nexus. Um, with with bioterrorism, uh, preparedness and response, when I was at the Centers for Disease Control back in 2000, one of the things that you, you realize is actually when the constitution was written, nobody actually said, who gets to oversee healthcare? Because of course that wasn't something that was on the top of their minds. And so it, it falls out to be a state right as opposed to a federal right because of the loophole in the constitution that says if it's not explicitly given to the federal government, then it actually is a state right. And that's why you see, at least for public health, each of the different states have their own public health system. And that's what we actually engage with. And so unlike the movies where suddenly miraculously CDC shows up at the scene uh, immediately, in real life, it actually is gonna be probably first detected at the local level if something odd is going on in terms of an outbreak or something like that by first responders at the local level that will be involved with their state system. And then their state public health system may then reach out to the federal level and say, we need your assistance. Um, but what does this mean for the future of health? Well, one of the things we were doing back in 2000, 2001, 2002, was we were trying to place an emphasis on what was called syndromic surveillance. And that was the idea of, well, you don't need to know the identities of the specific person. In fact, at the federal level, we're not supposed to because HIPAA protects that. We're just looking for the general trends. Are we seeing increases in flu season starting earlier or later? Are we seeing broad trends in terms of increase in gastrointestinal illness? And these raise interesting questions because if we can spot something in the broad population, there may be ways that we can address it earlier and get what we talk about of like left of boom. So earlier before something goes wrong. And, and, and what uh, Libby's been talking about is we are now at the point with the convergence of internet of things, internet of everything, machine learning, that what was being done at the aggregate level without knowing the individuals themselves now can actually be personalized and tailored to the individual of one. And it can actually say, based on what we see with your genetic history, also making sense of your protobiotics, so the bacteria that are in your body, we could actually tailor specific left-of-boom interventions that will make it less likely for you to have a specific type of cancer later in life or a specific type of heart problem. And that raises huge questions, however, because do we really want to know all the things that might go possibly wrong in our life? 
And that's, that, that to me raises ethical questions as well as how do you make sure that people are not discriminated against if it shows out that they are gonna be at a high risk when they're 50 or 60, right now they're just 20. How can you make sure they actually get the care they need and they're not discriminated against based on whether genetics show or what their bacteria show in their body? So Libby, maybe you can uh, touch on the, the technology dimensions of this and then move into, it's, 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 David was talking about kind of a combination of policy and privacy and sort of all bundled together. And maybe you can untangle this for us. I will try. There's a lot to untangle. Um, I will say what I think is really also often overlooked as we go to this more data-driven health environment is that the entire way we do research is going to be affected by this. Because at present, when we learn about health, we take individuals, we put them in, ideally in a placebo-controlled or a clinical trial of some sort where there's comparing, um, but then we usually go down to the average. And it starts talking, you know, we, as a scientist, you're always interested in what was the population size that you did your research on, because that conveys some sort of um, a breadth and depth of your of, of the data set. Um, and really, you know, we've been increasingly going to a world in which N, the, the number that are in your data set getting bigger is actually seen as a better um, way of getting insights into an individual into health of, of humans and what we're what we really have the potential to move towards is the opposite and going down to the n equals one world where when someone is born or is originally begins to be measured you no longer have to compare them over their life cycle against the average but against themselves previously and with that becomes a much more powerful tool to not only, understand the real changes that someone's experiencing over their lifetime or over disease formation, which we will change over our lifetime. But, but what you really want is when are things problematic? Um, but we're also going to be realizing how different we each are as individuals, um, which we've just been averaging in the past. And I think that affects not only how we use that information in a healthcare context or even in a health and fitness context, because I do think a lot of these interventions are going to be shifting to the consumer rather than necessarily going through um, at least the existing disease care system, as I've described it, um, because I, I think we need different institutions to look at how to care for or how to optimize health than we current and then than what our current healthcare system looks like, because there's no reason to bring someone who is otherwise healthy into a hospital just to, to help them optimize their health. Um, but also, it, you know, we, we are going to have to understand and, and think about how we do our research differently, which then very quickly gets to what does it mean if I as an individual um, have my information through a device that I've purchased and through a system and potentially a proprietary data set that a company won't even share with me? Um, and what if I want to contribute it to public health? What if I want to say I want others to learn from, from my experience in either, you know, whether it be genetic or biochemical or whatever measures that I have taken um, potentially on my own, um, we need to be able to have people, one, be able to measure, be comfortable with, with what is done with those measurements, and then also be able to learn from those um, through, through you know, these aggregations, but yet in a way that people are comfortable, their privacy feel, they feel their privacy is protected, um, and, and are able to then make conclusions about how we should move in a, either for that individual or as a, as a society for health and treatment options. 
David, you're you're actively nodding your head there. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 I, if I could I, just give an enthusiastic yes to what Libby said. Um, you think about it, uh, and this, this gets a little bit to the people-centered internet dimension that I'll be wearing a hat on in a future life. Um, if if the data that you produce was analogous to growing an apple tree, and that was an apple tree that you spent time cultivating, and you were collecting it from, you know, in this case, you, as, as Libby mentioned, maybe you had different devices, maybe you had different software, but it was your data, it was your apples on the tree that was being grown. We wouldn't expect in real life that anyone could show up and take those apples and walk off with it without talking to you or build a fence around and say, no, you can't move these apples. These are no longer your apples, even if they're the ones you produced. But it is seemingly a trend in the the, the digital space in which people are not really having the opportunity to weigh in as to what they want to have done with the data they produce. Uh, maybe we, we download an app and we read a 30 page terms and conditions, maybe we read it all the way or not, and we're getting that app for free in exchange for our data, or maybe it's, well, if you want to get service, it's either accepted or not, but it's, it's, it's not really giving a locus of choice back to the individual. And I think that is going to be so essential because there are going to be some people that say, I don't want to share my data because I'm worried as to what will be done about it. Or I want to have confidence that it will be kept anonymous and private. And that's that's a valid concern to ask. Um, but there may also be people that say, um, because of community-based issues and because maybe I'm dealing with some disease that is um, chronic in nature, I would like to anonymously contribute my data to the research pool so that proactively we can begin to find more tailored approaches to treatment as a result of sharing that. And I think that's only gonna happen when people have the trust in what's being done with their data. And so I think that is a very key thing to ask. The other thing that I think Libby also was, was touching on is more and more of this is gonna come from the consumer space. I mean, we've already seen this in general IT trends that, that consumer space is in some respects now influencing what happens in technology enterprises. We shouldn't be surprised if the same things start happening in the bio space and the healthcare space, that consumer trends will start influencing the insurance and the enterprise influences as well. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, there are companies already that are using machine learning to identify um, one who could be in a clinical trial automatically. I mean, trying to do this manually can take between three to six to nine months if you do it manually. The machine can actually look at, if you choose to share your data and say you would be a perfect for this therapeutic drug treatment, would you like to do it or not? And that's being done in, in near real time as opposed to delays of six to nine months. Similarly, you've seen it actually instances where people are actually trying to see if they can use your smartphone to try and take either an image or some other type of recording that could at least have an initial diagnosis of, do I need to take my child in to see the doctor or not? Is this a rash that is innocuous, or do I need to actually have a conversation about it? Or if maybe I'm a diabetic or I have high blood pressure, can I take a photo of my eye and that could actually help inform how my treatment's doing in a non-invasive way? Now, raises huge questions about how are you gonna certify that these things are have integrity and are trustworthy? Um, and so that gets into the Food and Drug Administration, which I can't possibly dive in or comment on. But this shows the art of the possible and things that we need to solve in the very short term, as opposed to waiting five years from now. So Libby, is the challenge here a, a set of technology obstacles or policy obstacles relating to privacy and some of the other issues that David was just describing? And where, do the, where, do the, where, do the, where does the technology and the policy intersect, overlap, and uh, diverge and have conflict? In many areas of emerging technology, policy is often an impediment to scale. 
to implementing in, in an environment more than just a pilot or a onesie twosie or something in a lab. Because, but nowhere is that more true than in health. And as someone who we have had, a, we've for since 2000, I did some consulting work with the National Health Service in the United Kingdom about being able to roll out some, some capabilities within their healthcare system um, to be able to use what we already know and had known for, for quite a while about how to use the, the speed at which an individual processes medication to be able to more effectively prescribe medication. So every individual, based on certain genetic changes, um, will have, usually it falls into a fast medium or slow um, way of processing lots of known medications. Um, if we even have that degree of granularity, we can more accurately prescribe individuals to say either a larger amount than on average or a smaller amount than on average, or just give them the average based on where they fall. Um, but there was no way to actually do the individual assessment of where someone fell on that curve with, with because of, of, of very, um, lack of comfort on the privacy side for who gets to see access to that genetic information to say which category you fall into. And it largely just didn't end up getting to the clinic and still is relatively um, unutilized, uh, definitely underutilized within the clinic, clinical setting, but, but potentially largely unutilized. Um, various consumer-driven um, genetic tests have actually done, I think, quite a bit to advance that, um, where a platform like 23andMe, uh, and particularly their, their pre-2009 interface, actually gave consumers uh, that input to say whether they were fast, medium, or slow metabolizers, which is the term for how you process drugs. Um, and that actually, um, if we could, we could find a way to create the policy comfort for individuals and for the medical practitioners who don't really know how to handle this data with the, the, the severity of implications, um, that would greatly facilitate moving that into the clinical practice. Um, I think here it's even more imperative because what we have are, um, it's not a question of the consumers not getting the products with the data-driven tech, health technologies because they're going to be using them. Um, it's a question of how far down the line we get before we discover there's just a really big policy gap that we should have been building for a decade ago, and that either we have to create a very suboptimal workaround, or we just can't go and do the things that we should be able to do with the information. Uh, and I do believe that there are a lot of technologies that we can come and or we can think about using to enable the consumer or the owner or the, the generator, the source of the data, whatever term you want to apply, um, to make them comfortable that that data is theirs and that they can share it and hopefully unshare it when if they if they lose comfort with whether it's a platform or whether it's a, a a pool of information. Right now, we really don't have those technological capabilities at scale, uh, and we you know individuals can anonymously donate their data. Um, but a real big hurdle is that that if if something really interesting comes out of that data, the researchers often cannot go back and get additional information from the the participant or the anonymized individual because of of ethical and some legal restrictions. Um, so really figuring out how we can have the fluidity of information going back and forth. And if someone is uncomfortable doing any of it, that they have a legitimate way of doing that. Um, but also those of us that might want to share it do have a way of sharing without um, without having to, to either go to really Herculean efforts or giving over all of our rights because it's a, a yes or a no. And we have actually a couple of comments and questions from Twitter. And I want to combine these two because I think that they're, they're related. So our, first, Arsalan Khan asks, 
uh, makes the comment, what about uh, data harmonization across systems and the difficulty and the, the difficulty of moving data and of vendors being unwilling to open their data? And then Sal Rasa is asking about what about getting the voices of patients, families, and caregivers factored in to that data stream. So questions about the composition of the data and the movement and ability to share that data and the willingness of uh, system providers, the vendors, to, to even make their systems open enough to enable the kind of sharing that Libby was talking about. So David, any thoughts on that? <laughs> All right, um, so great questions. And I think this gets to why one still needs a role for public service or for government agencies is to make sure that vendors don't use proprietary standards as a way of fencing, uh, fencing their customers off from being able to work with others and other companies and have choice. Now, that said, I can recall back in 2000, 2001, uh, health level seven uh, was being talked about, LOINC, it was another type of standard. It gets very challenging to try and identify a very detailed ontology for almost everything you want to describe in the healthcare space, let alone public health. I mean, public health, it's just about everything in our universe, and I've not seen a good ontology for describing everything in our universe to a detailed level. However, I think there needs to just be a general movement to trying and solve the data integration issue, which could include a community-based approach to make sure it's not just what the individual is presenting in their conversation with the doctors, but you're right. If something is a stress symptom, it's an emotional issue, mental issue, you do wanna have other family members' perspectives be brought into their care, um, because it may be that it looks like it's a pulmonary issue or a cardiovascular issue, when in fact it may be stress-related and it's just presenting itself as that. Um, so so, so how, do we, how do we go from here? Because I mean, this sounds very daunting and it is very daunting, I'm gonna give real quick three short things. The first is we do need to actually have that data integration, that data conversation, as, as Libby mentioned. How can we solve such that you have choice in what data you wanna share and with whom and for how long? And for that, I'll give a brief shout out to our friend Phil at the University of Texas, who is doing very interesting things with sidechain and student records. Um, and later conversation, we can talk about how that might be applied to similarly allow people to have choice about what they share with healthcare. The second thing is we do need to actually also have some integrity boards that look at what's being done to make sure they're not monopolistic practices, that there is integrity, both in terms of the devices that are gonna be used by people, so they're not just claiming they can detect something when in fact they're only accurate half the time, um, but also make sure the integrity with the data and what's being used. And then finally, the third thing we need to do is, as Libby mentioned, we've gotta rethink how we do health care, health prevention, disease prevention, not just disease treatment, and so that's probably gonna require a conversation across private sector, nonprofits, academia, as well as government to re-envision what's next and then figure out how do we get from the as is to the state with as little friction as possible. We, uh, we had on this show the uh, David Edelman, who right now is the chief marketing officer at Aetna. And Aetna's negotiating, it's been reported as negotiating with Apple to supply their members with Apple Watches in order to take measurements and, and distribute healthcare responsibility back to patients, back to healthcare, the insured. 
And, and so Libby, what about that? That becomes, again, sitting right on that intersection of policy and technology. And I think it's a, it's a great example because it also raises a couple other issues of uh, what it means to volunteer, correct, right? In order to, to consent to something, there has to be a, a credible option to, to not agree. Uh, and this is, uh, in that example, it's, it, you know, one has to ask, what are the, the ways in which an employee can credibly say no? Uh, and this gets even more important when we start thinking about in a, a federal government or a national security context, when we have our military personnel who it's an incredibly rich and dedicated community of, um, of individuals who have volunteered to die for the country often, um, who are in many cases standing up in, in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to volunteer their genetic information through the veterans. Um, their Veterans Administration has a program to allow them to, after they're either when they're in service or after they've separated, to say, no, I want to continue to serve my country and I want to um, volunteer to be a part of, of learning more about the, the, human, uh, the human organism. Um, but when they're in active duty, they may or may not be able to say no. And even if there's a box that they have to tick to say yes, they really don't. The, the concept of consent within an employee-employer relationship is something that I think we need to be very mindful may not fully be um, either fully informed or, or really voluntary. Um, so we do need to be um, mindful to how we build these systems so that it doesn't uh, end up undermining the trust that individuals have with um, the, the, not only the, the data itself, but the organizations that then use that data. I think there's lots of examples of different companies who are incentivizing the use of, of whether it be wearables like the Apple Watch or other types of um, data measurements or even as simple as tracking, you know, when you go to yoga or, or, or the gym and allowing that to give you discounts on different types of, of health-oriented services. Um, all of those, I think, are, are thinking about uh, innovative ways of trying to, to align incentives. But we do need to make sure that we're, we're thinking about whether that actually gives the full protections that, that society is going to need for those that may or may not feel comfortable participating in those systems. David Bray, what about the ethics of all of this? Because I think that's where, you know, the, the questions Libby was just raising cut right to the heart of some of the ethical challenges and the, the competing goals and competing interests. So how do we manage that? Right. Uh, well, I think uh, Libby is spot on that it's all about choice. We need to make sure there is the opportunity to make an informed choice um, that, that it is that you, you will expect that probably organizations should offer a choice architecture. So it's not just a Boolean yes or no, but it says if you choose to give no data, that's okay. If you choose to give some data for a limited period of time, here's maybe the incentives we're offering, but we're, we're making sure you understand the trade-off that is being done. Maybe you choose to give more data for a longer period of time as well, but try to get more granular and make sure that again, that the nexus and the locus is on the individual and their family having choices as opposed to, yes, here you're going to be buried underneath 40 pages of legal paperwork. You're not probably going to read it, but you have a, if you don't sign, you're not going to get the care you want. That's not an informed choice. That's not empowering the individual. Uh, the other thing is that we also have to think about is, you know, when we're born into this world, before we're born, none of us know if we're going to be a healthy individual or not. We're, we don't know if we're going to be in a nice uh, setting in which we have access to good health care or not. And so I think it's, we have to think about that context, which is, is 
what do you do for the people that before they're born um, may, when they are born, actually have circumstances beyond our control that they, they have something that was that was either a genetic anomaly or they were born into a less uh, affluent area that could have less access to healthcare? What would be fair? And then that's actually what um, uh, Rawls talks about uh, as a philosopher. He says is, in any situation, you're going to have people that are worse off than others. And, and, and trying to get complete fairness, that may never happen. But what, what situation do you want to do such that those who are worse off are the best off of all possible scenarios. And I think that's what we can strive for, is making sure we don't have a very significant drop-off for those that, you know, through no fault of their own, have a genetic anomaly at birth or later on in life, or were born into circumstances where they did not have access to good healthcare. Let's make sure we think about them and recognize that, yes, it is a free market, it is a system in which you can make choices, but also think about, you know, I mean, as I just adopted a newborn baby boy, I don't know his entire genetic history. I don't know his family history. So obviously I need to think about in that context, what would be a, a situation in which both it allows people to have choice, allows the free market dynamics to work themselves out, but also address the fact that none of us know before we're born how healthy we're gonna be in life. And I'd also add to that, I think the, that example in particular also highlights the fact that any individual's ownership of their own, particularly their genetic information, is not theirs alone. And so when someone talks about privacy and their desire for privacy, particularly around genetic information, um, there are many other generations of their family that are affected by that. And so if someone chooses to give over their information, um, it's, not a, it's not entirely their choice to make if others don't want it. And that, comp that makes it much more complex when we think about creating privacy um, within particularly the genetic the genetic space. So it's not, I think often people think of it as, as being theirs and theirs alone. And I think we just need to think broader and, and acknowledge that it's much more complex. Yeah, that's that's a, a very, very interesting uh, example, genetic information. We have a, a really good question from Twitter. Gus Bekdash is asking, uh, so technology and AI, at what point does the tech move exponentially faster or move faster and then the rate at which society can safely absorb that technology and and maybe that's the issue we're talking about but i think it's a very compelling question we may be there already <laughs> to be honest yeah and i'd say we've been there for decades i mean i think policy is always behind technology particularly emerging technologies because policy is supposed to, you know, you can't make policies about everything and particularly things that have not yet emerged, you can't regulate. Um, and so you have to have guide, guidelines for how to um, diagnose when you're at a point where there is need to put in place either protections or potentially efforts to uh, more rapidly advance fields. Uh, and I think AI is in that place where, depending on, on how you look at it, there's a lot of amazing things that we can do with data-driven decision-making um, and, and sort of outsourcing to uh, algorithms and other, um, the, the things that maybe humans aren't very good at based on our, our skill sets and our cognitive bias. Um, but we're, we're never going to have a point, and, and I would argue we never have had a point in which policy has been up date with technology. And then the question is, are the technologies that are emerging now fundamentally different in ways that we need to even think about our regulatory tools totally differently and, and really go back to what it means to create 
uh, a regulatory or governance context around emerging technology because potentially they are just very different than the technologies that have emerged in the past. And, and, and to build on what Libby is saying, I think what also makes things interesting is, is the internet itself is global in nature. Now, we still have an obligation less than half, you know, we're only at about 45% of the planet is connected. So we still have, as we talk about this, what do we do both for the nation, but also for the world to bring it online because it would be unfair for us to make massive advances in delivering healthcare, health prevention online, but only for those that were connected. But then two, if, if in the past regulations were defined by geography, whether it be what the state decides or what the nation decides, um, that's gonna be very difficult to do in this new era because you can't define yourself by geography. And so the question is, how do we how do we even do the process of making sure there's both informed consent, there's protections, when people are citizens of the world and these devices are going to cross borders? Um, and, and that this is what I call terra incognita, cyber terra incognita. It's, it's unprecedented, and that's why I think when I mentioned those three things we need to do, we need to as quickly as possible have conversations across borders, across organizations, as to if we were to reconceptualize how we would do health healthcare prevention of diseases, health, you know, health longevity, how would we do that going forward in a almost like a microservices modular fashion, just like with IT, what we've seen with cloud services where you can interchange things in and out. These are going to be services that are going to be delivered and devices are going to be delivered. But that's a totally new framework. And I don't think top down is going to succeed because it is unprecedented, this digital era we're in. Libby, we have, you know, let's see, we have, well, we have seven minutes left and it's I guess, your opportunity to solve this problem for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's going to take a lot more engagement than just one person to solve this. Um, I will say, I, you know, I'm, I, I think the scientific community tends to be um, perennially optimistic, and I would uh, like to put myself in that category. Um, but as someone who's been on the government side and in the national security community, I, you know, there are concerns we need to think about, but what I would encourage people to do is make sure not to lose the, the benefits um, uh, just because things are, are very moving very quickly and, and um, potentially going into uncharted territory. I do think, and it's something when, when I'm teaching, I, I often have to compel my students to really think about, it's not, when we think about ethics and we think about using technologies, um, we do have to think about the potential costs or the risks to an individual or to society for using a technology, but we really also need to think about what are the costs of, of choosing not to use it. And, and this is particularly relevant when we talk about within national security and protecting our warfighters and, and if there are interventions that we can do, but we choose to not do them, it, you know, it raises entirely different ethical questions and, and one in which we don't um, necessarily default to action then, although as, as humans and definitely as Americans, we often do default to action. Um, but we need to at least acknowledge that not using a tech and not um, applying it in a certain context also can have an ethical or a, a cost to individuals. Uh, and nowhere is that more true than in the healthcare space. So it's, it's a conversation that's, I think, just beginning. Uh, I think there needs to be a lot of different voices involved and not only just the, the caregivers for for those that are ill, but also, you know, technology and governance is often done by a few for the many, uh, and there will still need to be those that, that that can stand and facilitate and and really, you know, agree to put 
the 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 whole above an individual, which is is what is a government and a, a political public service that you actually a public servant you are actually agreeing to do. Um, you know, you have to put the collective above your own. Um, we need people to do that, but we also need those voices from everyone else to have an engage to have a, a thoughtful contribution to the conversation. But recognize that at the end. A decision will have to be made and there will have to be a path chosen that may or may not be something that was your first choice, but hopefully, however it does play out, um, people will then say, okay, well, how can I best engage in this to make it the, the best outcome that I can? David, we have a, a um, <clears throat> on Facebook, there's a, a listener, Lydia Siegel, who happens to be one of my, one of my oldest friends and is a, an ethics professor here in Boston at one of the, the universities. And she's saying absolutely fascinating. And so, so David, this ethical question, if you were to prioritize the, the ethics, the technology, the policy, where's the obstacle and where is the enabler of moving forward with these technologies in healthcare, but it's probably also this similar in uh, other fields as well. Yes, um, so, so I think you could look across anything that the United States tries to do that spans sectors. Um, we are great when we can get alignment between what the public sector is looking for, what the private sector is looking for, what the individuals are looking for, what nonprofits and academia are looking for. The obstacle is there's not currently a narrative, a set of shared goals that brings those sectors into alignment. Um, you know, the private sector is thinking about healthcare as to, well, how do I bring in money? It's a free market system. Uh, public sector is thinking about what to provide for their constituents. The individual is thinking about their own individual health, which they should be. And, and so you have different things that are right now not, they have not been brought together in a narrative that creates the umbrella where they can come together. As to how to address this, uh, two brief things, uh, empathy and community-based approaches. Um, I, I'm, I am concerned increasingly that the internet, we've had the supposition that the internet would lead to more transparency in our lives, which lead to better truth and better understanding. And what we've discovered, unfortunately, is more information on the internet leads to actually selections of different pieces of information that fit our cognitive biases, whatever they might be, and actually fragmentation as opposed to bringing us together. And so we need empathy from the private sector. We need empathy from the public sector as to what are the day-to-day -day stresses of individuals. Empathy from, from the public themselves, recognizing these are really hard problems. You know, if, if it was easy to figure out, it would have been done already. And then finally, community-based approaches. How can we actually think about this in terms of where the center is the individual and their family units? And as Libby actually pointed out, not just the individual's choice, but actually what their other family members choose as well, because that will impact them. And then what role can the private sector do to help empower them, the public sector, nonprofits, academia? I feel like right now when it comes to healthcare, we're lacking that narrative that brings us together. We're lacking that empathy and we're lacking that focus on community-based approaches. Libby, in the last, uh, and I love that. I love the idea of empathy-based thinking relating to technology, to policy, to privacy, to the to to the technology itself. Uh, Libby, in in the last uh, minute, where is all of this going? From a tech, you're as a biologist and as, as a scientist, where do you see this going in the next few years? So so, please sh share us. Share with us a glimpse of the future. And you have about a minute to do this. 
I think we're going to see a lot of new capabilities brought online in small at small scale. So we have already have a lot of uh, amazing um, neuro-based prosthetics, a lot of, of uh, ability to measure in real time at a biochemical level for an individual. Uh, a lot of these capabilities exist in small scale. And the real question is to what degree we can take them to something that allows for con either consumers or medical uh, practitioners to, to be able to use these more effectively. I do think we'll get there. Um, I think it probably won't be necessarily a smooth transition because I think what's probably going to happen is that um, consumer products are going to emerge in otherwise unregulated spaces. And we're going to have to then think about them after the fact. And I think 23andMe is a great example of that, where it really got ahead of delivering of consumer-based products in a, in a space that, that has historically been um, very regulated. And everyone in healthcare had just sort of uh, assumed they were regulated and therefore acted accordingly. And I think we're not going to see that going forward. I think we're going to see individuals who are, are either... Um, appropriately defining themselves as outside of regulation and moving forward or, or potentially, you know, finding loopholes and delivering things to society potentially at scale. And then we're going to have to grapple with what we do with that. Um, I think many of them will have the potential to provide incredible benefit to a lot of people. Uh, and I think the question then is how is society, do we react to these shocks as they come along? And I hope we don't just say, well, this is too risky. We can't do it. I hope it then gets to more of this com community-centered dialogue that, that David was talking about, where we can can really say, okay, well, well, let's make sure that we're not, um, let's make sure we're, we're giving the benefits where we can safely give them and effectively give them, but also protecting those that otherwise wouldn't have a voice. And David, it looks like we have about 30 seconds left. Actually, we're, we're over time, so you're going to get the last word. Where's the future going? And, uh, you know, define the future in a tweet, please. Uh, define a future in a treat. Um, the net is fragmenting us. We must have empathy to bring us back together. I love it. The net is fragmenting us. We must, we must have empathy to bring us back together. Wow, what a great discussion. I'd love to, I want to thank uh, our guest today. David Bray is the incoming executive director. Is that the right term, David? Correct, yes. Of people-centered internet. And Libby Prescott is a, quote, recovering scientist who is and worked in the government and is now a professor at Georgetown. Thank you both for taking the time. And uh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. And everybody next week, there's no show because it's Labor Day. But come back in two weeks and we have more amazing CXO talks. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day and goodbye. Mm -hmm.